0: Jonathan, welcome again to When Lambs
1: Are Signed, the podcast. Um, you're here again with Aaron and Dale.
0: Yes, hello everyone. And today we have Tanya Mead from Just Speak, which is a movement of young people speaking out on the criminal justice system in New Zealand and are looking to develop conversations on how we can change from a more punitive. Approach to a more fair and compassionate system So that's going to be interesting I thought it was a really good listen actually Something that's come up a lot, I feel, in a lot of circles So yeah, have a listen
1: And this is um, still part of our series, Imagining What If And in this conversation we're talking about Imagine a world without prisons What would that look like? So there's definitely some interesting stuff in here There's some stuff here that not everyone will agree with It also might be stuff that you may not have thought through yeah, so just really encourage you take a moment listen to it through and we'll talk about it after i also need to preface that there is a little bit of wind the conversation's good so i think it's worth <laughs> listening to just a little bit of wind it was a really beautiful day and tanya was sitting outside and i just did not have the heart to tell her to go outside. Well, you can not blaming it. me yeah.
0: stuck inside all the time
1: i know because we're all locked down still so um you got to take those sun rays when you've gone away yeah, yeah. Right, anyway we'll jump into it Let's get on with the show.
0: Well,
1: kia ora. Welcome I'm to When I'm Lamb's Scient, the podcast. Today, really excited. We've got an awesome guest for you, Tanya um, Me from Just Speak. Hey, Tanya, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, I guess, Just Speak and the mahi um, that you guys are up to.
2: Yeah. Cool, uh, Kilda. Um, okay, me. Well, I am a Wellington-born and, uh, and raised, born and raised, born and raised, braising slightly today in this glorious sunshine. Yeah, so I sort of background in human rights work and government and in parliament and in the community sector. That's sort of my fucker papa of my of my work, and my, my sort of journey toward justice reform. And I have been at Just Speak for about oof, coming up on three years now. And Just Speak is an organisation of young people, uh, or kind of youth adjacent in my case, and, and a few others like me, who are interested in shifting public attitudes and changing the conversation about criminal, criminal justice in Aotearoa. We're sick of having to talk about ourselves as a place with one of the highest rates of incarceration in the developed world, and and also a place where the disparity, the mass incarceration of Māori, one might say, bluntly, you know, plays such a huge role in that statistic. And we see that there are a lot of issues with the current criminal justice system, but that one of the common denominator across all of them, punitive public attitudes, people's belief in punishment and prison, that are often born out of fear and misunderstanding of what drives harm in our communities and how we can resolve it, but also speak to New Zealand's colonial history, I think, and the way that we as a country were formed in some of the attitudes, particularly in the parkia discourse, that have basically come to define how we approach um, not just justice but lots of other things you know there's a huge interrelationship with that and for example how we think about and talk about welfare and financial support for whānau who are struggling for example. So we to kind of pursue that goal of changing the public attitudes um, and therefore changing the policies and processes and systems, we develop tools, we campaign, we develop resources and do research we try to convince the government to do things differently Uh, we try to activate young people um, to be informed about criminal justice and what needs to change yeah and we ally up with whoever we can to kind of try and push the momentum on justice reform
1: awesome sounds like you guys have done some real awesome money there
2: thank you Um, yeah i think so
1: so so i guess our, our episode today we're talking about like what if what if we had a world without prisons. What if we were able to reform the justice system? What would that look like? And so we'll get to that soon. But I guess speaking to someone that maybe hasn't had an experience with the justice system, maybe they haven't had a negative experience with the justice system. Maybe they don't know people that are really affected by that. And from the outside looking in, you might think, hey, like, it's just the way it is. It's the way it should be. I mean, what are some of the problems that you see that lead you to, to believe that, no, there needs to be some form of transformation?
2: I mean, where to start? I guess the central problem that, that I see is that very little about what we do in criminal justice actually helps us to address the problems in our communities that drive harm and that trap people in situations where they do end up in the justice system and cycling in and out of it. That's the fundamental problem. We, we don't have a system that is geared towards supporting communities and solving problems. We have a system that's geared towards a very narrow, bureaucratic way of accounting for harm that reflects our colonial attitudes and beliefs in what matters and who matters, rather than a modern treaty-honoring system that actually tries to, through the interventions that we make in people's lives, help people to get what they need to thrive and help resolve conflicts or harm when they arise. And it's very easy to not be aware of that if you have never been through the justice system. I'm, I'm lucky that I've never been, I've never had to go through a justice system, I've never been to court, I've never been sentenced to prison, um, and nor has anyone in my immediate whānau. So, you know, I think for a long time I felt that you know, I saw the, the, the issue of the mass incarceration of Māori, that how in you know, Māori, 50% of our male prison population, 70% of the female prison population, but only 15 or so percent of the general population. I mean, that's just a, that's a statistic. Many people can rattle off the top of their head, and that's quite disturbing. But I think I knew that as a younger person, but it, it didn't strike me as... At the time, as constituting anything fundamental about the way that our system works, and it's through listening to more people who've had those first-hand experiences and understanding how disempowering and how unhelpful and how distant those criminal justice processes are from the, the fabric of the everyday lives that I've kind of come to understand how it is that we keep perpetuating this horrendous deeply racist, deeply kind of unproductive system is because it's detached from the everyday reality of people's lives, which is that they don't have enough food to live on. They have experienced intergenerational cycles of violence or uh, and poverty, which trap them in circumstances in which there is no lawful way out, which narrow their horizons and through which they've never experienced any meaningful help from anyone beyond, you know, in many cases, their immediate communities and whānau to get out of that situation and what the justice system does is punish people i think for experiencing that hardship not not all people obviously who go through the justice system have experienced those like really profound early life traumas but a majority of them have you know we look at the rates of traumatic brain injuries of experiencing violence um, as a young person of really low levels of literacy um, and exclusion from education. So people have been kicked out of school and people who have had really, have had really, really tough lives. There are other people, obviously there are people, middle class folk, who also end up in the justice system. And I guess often what people ask is, what do we do about those people? who We can't understand their offending through that lens of what what has happened to them in their life and what's been expected of them. And then for those circumstances, I think we can, we come back to this question of okay, if the goal is to prevent people from hurting other people again, to decrease reoffending, to create a situation in which a community and a person can thrive, they have purpose and they have understood the harm that they may have done and kind of provided some redress for that. Well, sending people to prison where they're isolated from the impacts of whatever it is that they have done is the opposite, I think, of how in most of our daily life we understand how you hold someone accountable. You know, normally holding someone accountable means forcing them on a regular basis to, to atone for in meaningful, useful ways that, I mean, atonement is a slightly laden concept One I'm not sure if I feel so strongly about, but, but at least to account for what they've done in a way that actually resolves the original issue and seeks to kind of solve the problems that lie behind it. And not all people who go through the justice system end up in prison, but there are very few meaningful alternatives that aim to get to the heart of what is our collective responsibility as the community in whom the court's name operates to take responsibility for people in our society who have fallen, who've fallen over, who've been harmed, who've harmed others, or who have just, who are there because they couldn't afford to get their driver's license, they couldn't afford to get their warrant of fitness, they were pulled over three times, got a bunch of fines, couldn't pay them, ended up in court, ended up in prison. You know, we, we can build a system, I think, which meaningfully responds to all those different situations. You know issues that are basically crimes of poverty, um, which are barely crimes at all, and really serious questions about harm in our communities. We can tackle that in a way where we talk about our collective responsibility delegated to the courts. You know, to go well, what would actually solve what would actually solve this problem of this person experiencing this person's profound poverty and their inability to to feed their children, or what would solve this issue of kind of more serious interpersonal harm. Is sending someone to prison really the best way to resolve the fact that they've grown up experiencing violence their whole life by sending them to an institution where violence is an everyday norm? Or do we engage someone in a process where we work with them to develop better ways of interacting with others and, and we walk through that process with them? Mm-hmm. It's quite a convoluted answer to your question, yeah. but I think, yeah, I, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a lot going on there.
1: I'm just thinking about that, and you know, I can hear some people sort of thinking, hey, like that's, that's fair enough. We can have compassion that people have... Mm had hard lives, but I mean, at the end of the day, you do the crime, you do the time, right? Like, so what would you say to someone is, do you have I an mean, example um, that sort of brings this home? So someone can picture that person that you're seeing, you know, you said that your story came through hearing people's stories. Is there an example mm-hmm. that you can think, hey, this is how I knew that there's more going on here.
2: I think of an example of a man who went to prison for six months for taking six trout from a river to feed his family. Around the same time, I think in the same year, this for boy And this guy was Maori. He had a family, I think, of four children, and he he did not have enough money to feed them, and he was he was charged with with taking the trout at a time that it wasn't. Was the wrong time of the season. That involves the knowledge of trap fishing that I don't have. And same time, four Parkia boys were caught stealing tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, uh, like TVs, boats. Quite extraordinary level of of kind of premeditated burglary. And they had nothing. They they didn't want for anything. They were they were from well off middle class family Parkia families. Um, they didn't need that money. And was. You know, very little in the way, I guess, of explaining or justifying why they decided to kind of to steal from their community. And they got community sentence. So I think the, the comparison between those two cases tells, tells us that there's something quite broken if you go to prison for trying to feed your family. But premeditated burglary to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, is treated differently because you have the privilege of coming from a family who are able to support you to understand what it is that you've done wrong. What we're doing is we are punishing people once through the, the this punitive system that we have, but secondly, adding on to that sentence additional kind of punishments for not having the kinds of privileges that would allow them to, you know, be reintegrated safely into the community. And that to me indicates, a, you know, a really broken model. But also, you know, when you look at one interesting innovation that's happened in the criminal justice system of late is this there's a provision in the sentencing act that that sort of talks about taking into account someone's cultural background as a factor in their sentencing and what many lawyers and advocates have done is use that provision to write reports called section 27 reports basically to give judges more information about the background of someone and why it is that they might have done what they've done and you know what you see as a pattern through those reports when they're made available is the fact that people's experiences of trauma, of dislocation from their culture, for some people, particularly for Māori, of being actively denied their culture, of experiencing profound institutional racism, so being kicked out of school, being told that they're good for nothing, being told that they will never make anything of themselves, experiencing violence, you know, a litany of things that vary obviously from person to person, but there's this constant theme of having been failed by every other social system that we have. It's meaningless to talk only about an individual's personal responsibility for what they've done, when we have abdicated all of our collective responsibilities to each other to make sure that people have a decent chance at a decent life. So that's kind of how I think about it, is that comforting yourself with the idea that our justice system is fair uh, and proportionate and geared towards good outcomes is a way to not have to think about our collective obligations or responsibilities to each other. And to the social safety net, that is the one thing that we could you know, based on all the evidence we've seen across countries all across the world and throughout the history of Aotearoa, the thing that we see has the most power to um, reduce harm um, and, and give people a chance at actually you know, living lives free of offending. It's not an easy answer because that idea of individual responsibility for an individual harm, ignoring all the systemic problems, has been quite a dominant one I think in, in the Pākehā world particularly, that's something that we inherited from our colonial forebears, it's something we inherited from capitalism, but it doesn't help us. I think it's comforting because, you know, it's comforting for you, I think, because it makes you think, well, if I just obey the law and don't do anything wrong, then I won't end up in that system. But in the long term, that doesn't help any of us because it doesn't stop people from offending, it doesn't, doesn't change the conditions in which people are likely to. To break the law and so what we get is the system that we have which is one of the highest prison populations in the world high rates of reoffending high rates of people experiencing family violence and poverty and nothing to show for it you know more people getting hurt so it shouldn't be comforting when you think about the long-term consequences and that's why i guess what i challenge people to think about is who do you want to have as your neighbor in five years if someone commits a crime do you want to have someone as you and this is actually a way of phrasing it that came to me from a 14 year old who we did a workshop with late last year in uh, Rongotai. who having listened carefully to everything that we kind of presented to them and have listened to his peers some of whom you know said oh justice means an eye for an eye he was like well who do you want to live next door to? Do you want to live next door to someone who, you know, when inevitably, because people do come out of prison, they come out of the, the, the kind of clutches of the justice system. Do you want to live next someone to someone who's been given a chance to, to be helped, to be supported, to be given a second chance, be told that they're worth something as a human being, that we believe that they can change? Or do you want someone who's been basically told, do the crime, do the time, we don't give a shit about you? I think everyone will want to live next door to the former person. And so we just have to kind of broaden our concept of who is our neighbor, you know, to something a little more, a little more radical and a little more compassionate.
1: Love that. So you've talked a lot about sort of racism and colonization and the effects that that is having on our justice system. I'm also aware that there will be people that struggle with it. They will think, well, I don't see that. Surely, you know, we all get treated equally. This is 2020, you know, maybe in the past, you know, maybe in America, but in Aotearoa, really? I mean, can you speak a bit about how colonisation has is impacting on our system now, and how that is affecting, I guess, the rights of Māori in the justice
2: system? Yeah, I mean, it, it affects in lots of ways. I think the starting point is that it is a system designed to the near total exclusion of Māori, both as individual people involved in, you know, writing the laws or um, creating the that sense of you know what appropriate consequences are, who gets to be involved in that decision about. You know what the consequences are and and whose voices count. Uh, they also were excluded in terms of you know the Te Ao Māori worldview was was you know for the most part entirely excluded from particularly early um, law writing that kind of all the foundations I guess the beams and building blocks of our justice system were written with the intent of excluding Te ao Māori perspectives because they were not considered to be part of you know a relevant part of the justice system which you know, really saw its roots coming from, from England. And, you know, that reflects lots of things about whether you see an individual as a solo person or someone who's connected to uh, iwi, ahapu, uh, their whānau um, and, and what their whakapapa is. Uh, which is obviously very, very relevant for Tia Māori, but also how the state has constantly created laws that were outright racist when it came to what Māori were entitled to for financial compensation from the government, spaces that they were allowed in, their ability to preach, their ability to speak their own language, all of those things, That those were laws that were created by white lawmakers to deliberately dismantle Maori culture and some of those laws remain on the statute books today I mean they've they've obviously they have evolved over time but that those roots remain you know it's the foliage that's changed and how we see that play out now is this really different sense of who is deserving of a second chance who gets the benefit of the doubt like respectability politics stuff for sure so who look who shows up in court and looks like someone who we believe is is deserving a second chance or is looks like a quote good person from a good family who you know we can rely on to change because most of the judges are Parkia, most of the lawyers are Pākehā, um, most of them do grew up in communities with a certain set of assumptions about the way the world works and it's, it is hard to change that but also Again, it comes back to this point of there are laws which exclude you from a reasonable and fair process of justice based on your income because you can't afford a good lawyer, because you were caught stealing money to feed your family. There are many myriad ways in which that plays out or because, you know, you were accidentally overpaid a benefit, didn't pay it back. MSD come after you, you can't pay them back and you end up in court. The theft and confiscation of Māori land and resources is directly tied to why we see Māori being horribly overrepresented in numbers of people who you know, receive a benefit or are, are just financially struggling being paid less, particularly Māori and Pacifica women. So those things are all really relevant. Then you get down to the actual bias of day-to-day actors in the criminal justice system. We did some research um, over the last year using the Statistics New Zealand database, which looked at how likely the police were to have a first interaction with you so to kind of either to arrest you or to you know have an interaction with you of various kinds and then subsequently how likely you were to be charged if you were maori versus if you were pakeha and we adjusted for all the things that i've just described we adjusted for economic disparity we adjusted for for example if you're if you're a solo parent receiving a benefit we know those things are likely to increase uh, the chances of you interacting with the police that doesn't mean that it's right that doesn't mean that we should accept that but we wanted to know separate to those questions what could we identify that was just bias plain and simple and what we found was that Maori were 1.7 times more likely to have that first proceeding so to be arrested to, to be arrested off offered diversion um, you know to have that first kind of interaction with police and then seven seven times more likely to be charged yeah, so that's some kind of, some real specific evidence there of that bias, which is a legacy of colonisation, a, leg- a legacy of our history. And we see that in an overrepresentation of Māori who are more likely to be shot or tasered or have dogs set on them by police. And we see that, obviously, most profoundly in the proportion of Māori in our in our justice system. Department of Corrections, police and justice have all acknowledged that they struggle with institutional racism. Some they call them unconscious bias. To me, you know, being unconscious conscious as if you're lying down Um, so that's perhaps a bit of a uh, misleading term, but certainly they've all said, you know, we recognize that some of these some of this disparity relates to other problems around Economic disparity and social disparity, but some of it we think can't be explained by that it is just bias So if, if you own in government institutions, which obviously are very protective of their reputation are admitting that then You know, we can we can guess that the reality is is even more stark. That's yeah That's some of the evidence for the ongoing impact of colonization
1: mm, Thanks, and, and I guess moving now so we see some of those challenges there. I mean, moving to the prisons, then what's what's the problem with those? So I guess there'll be people thinking, well, we need a sum system. Okay, we need to clean up sort of how people get there um, and who goes there. But is there a better alternative? What's the problem with prisons anyway? The
2: problem with prisons is that they don't work. They never have. The only thing that they function as is to, to detain people. So they do function as a way to keep people locked in a box but they don't deter people. So there's no, a lot, you know, the, the justification that we often use for prison or that is that is often understood is that if people know that there's a punishment at the end of a crime, then they will, won't do the crime. But that doesn't, it's not how people's brains work. Most people do not, you know, white-collar criminals accepting or people who commit, you know, fraud. They, there's a high degree of premeditation there, but they're not most of the people that you see in our prisons. There's not a deterrent factor. People don't tend to weigh up the pros and cons of doing something and, and consider the risk and then consider the reward and then and then kind of make a rational decision. Most harm that's committed, uh, most breaking of the law, is really about circumstantial stuff around, trauma experience the situations that you're in the difficulty of seeing other ways out a whole host of other things that are are reactive rather than proactive so that's the first thing I guess the other thing is that, what more recently, we see a discourse around, you know, we say, oh, we have a collective obligation to help people, so we don't want them to re-offend again, we don't want more people to be hurt, or more property to be stolen, and we want this person to get the help that they need. So why don't we just put some programs in prison that will teach them the right way of things? But it misunderstands, fundamentally, what it is that motivates people to change, and what kind of environment they need to be in to do that. And for most people, being separated from their family and friends, being an environment which they sometimes, they often fear for their physical safety and for their lives, where they routinely talk down to, referred to by a number, have limited access to the outside world, and a sense of kind of a real shrinking of their world. It's not a great motivation to change. I don't know if you've, but, um, I certainly have never been encouraged to turn my life around. So it's, it's wonderful that as a society we've, we've finally kind of ditched, the idea that locking people up is reflective of the kind of society we want to be or what our values are. We haven't quite gone the the full hog um, and abandoned this outdated idea of prisons as a place where we can achieve that. And that's just because incrementalism has not gotten us far enough. We need the more radical change that goes. If we want to hold people accountable for what they've done, then the best way to do that is through a process that they have input in, that they feel is legitimate um, and which they feel that they are held accountable by people who matter to them um, and often what we talk about is uh, you know restorative justice processes which are not easy by any means but are often profoundly difficult and challenging processes to go through where people are forced to confront the impact of what they've done grappling with why you did it what the impact was on you but most importantly what the impact was on the person or people that you hurt and and that's that's a difficult thing people to wrap their heads around because lots of us are pretty conflict avoidant and the idea of sitting in a room with people that we've hurt or have heard us is, is quite challenging, but it's also productive. It's that productive discomfort that helps us face the problems that we as a society have mostly created and do what we can to fix them. The, the illusion of prison is that if we lock away our problems, we don't have to think about them and they will go away, but they don't, um, they just come back, come back to haunt us and basically repeat history. It's hard for us to imagine a world without prisons because You know, most of us have only lived in one in which they were a reality, but for Māori, that was not the reality. For many cultures in the world, that was never a reality. It's not to say that they also, there are historical justice processes that we don't want to kind of recreate. There's some that we do, that are kind of based around, you know, restorative principles. So I think it's a failure of imagination. I don't mean that that's individual people's failure to do that work themselves, because that is a really hard thing to think about when you don't want to think about prison very often. But I think it's a failure of our collective imagination. We can build a better system. The problem is at the moment, we're just spending so much time and energy trying to tweak the one that we currently Mm. have, which has not really gotten us anywhere. And we see that particularly with COVID where the progress that was being made on justice reform, slowly, I would say very too slowly, under this current government, it may be stalled. Uh, it will be stalled by the fact that their response to the COVID situation has been to lock people in their cells for 23 hour a day. And that won't solve anyone's problems, and it certainly will not help them um, get over the traumas and engage in a process of difficult restorative justice and healing and accountability. So I think there's a there's a lesson here for acting while you can and mm. thinking bold.
1: When you think of the future we could have in our the justice system we could have, what do you see?
2: Mm. I see uh, I see a world where people. For starters, that we have a collective responsibility to each other to have, so that everyone has a roof over their head, a foot on the table, that people have the right to a decent work and a decent wage. I see a community where we are we are better connected in neighbourhoods and families across cities where we have a sense of who is doing okay and who isn't, and we have built into and bought into a system of collective responsibility for how people are doing so that we can take problems before they become really serious but also that we see our what our role is in being part of that system so we don't we don't just expect the sharp edge of the state to take care of that that we see and what we are supported to by the resources of the state and by each other to do what we can for each other to help with people who are struggling because they've got a small child at home and they're feeling really isolated or people who we know have had a traumatic brain injury and their impulse control is really bad couples who are having a really difficult time in their home and they're arguing a lot and they're drinking you know how do we know about that and how can we collectively and in a non intrusive way supports people um so that they don't it doesn't escalate they don't feel trapped and isolated and they don't end up you know in front of the court facing really serious charges you know i see society though where if things have gotten have escalated to that point then firstly there's a reckoning with what we could have done differently so when did we miss this where did we miss this opportunity to help these people where did we miss the warning signs where did we miss our opportunity to support them and then our process going forward is one around how we how do we stop this from happening again that that is our you know, contrary to the current court system where there's it's no one person's responsibility to um, take accountability for the situation as it stands and to take responsibility for what happens next and how we prevent it from happening again, you know, that that's flipped on its head. And actually that's the obligation of the court. Uh, and the court is more meaningfully representative of the community that it serves. And the court says, well, you know, our number one goal should be to stop this from happening again. What is, what can we do with the power of the state and with the power of the community to stop it and happening again? And, and how can we repair the harm that has been done? Those are the processes that I think will mean that we can focus on, on helping people not just not end up in prison and being punished for, you know, for no good outcomes, but actually going beyond that and having a kind of a more aspirational vision for a society in which people actually beyond that have good lives and thrive and that that is not determined by the colour of your skin how much money your family had when you were born, where you came from, what your whakapapa is, um, and that those those experiences did not disadvantage you, but moreover, that there's an a accounting for that and, and how much support you know, you've given in those, um, particularly in those those most difficult times that you have. you know, And in that world, I think that there's still a role for people who res- respond to crises in the way that we have the current emergency services. But I think they would look very different. I don't think we would have armed police. I think we would have people who are skilled negotiators whose you know, whose number one skill is de escalation. We would have people who are mental health crises experts who if someone calls them out because they suicidal which you know we we see happening now that they go to support that person primarily to talk them down and to get them the help that they need and that people are misbehaving or acting out or hurting others that the goal again is to de-escalate and diffuse that situation rather than kind of bring in potentially more harm and more violence into those people's lives
1: awesome it's a beautiful vision so i mean (laughs) there, there will be some that are saying well i mean this makes sense and and saying well if you know and a lot of people obviously working on the front line and people experiencing this know that something needs to change why aren't things changing in government maybe thinking about what can people do you know what can they do to support transformation and change to happen just reflecting on these bills in front of parliament at the moment for example the first responders bill which is a very punitive sort of base bill as well as some others why do these uh, bills keep getting put up why are we still going after a really punitive system
2: well, you know, you'll have to ask Derek Ball about why he feels the need to put money and time and effort into a broken system. I think that's definitely on him. But I think because because of that failure of imagination is why we see those bills, we, because we see people who feel scared and see the challenge that many in the community are facing and the hurt that they're experiencing and feel afraid and so resort to things that they know, that they've been taught, some people that they learnt throughout their childhood, that they experience the world through a series of strict rules and of punishment if they broke those rules. And that's the stern father kind of experience that people then take with them. And the stern father is a kind of, I don't necessarily mean people actually had stern fathers, but it's a kind of heuristic to understand how some people see the world. You know, stern father versus nurturing family, I think is the kind of sort of the two dichotomies. And we, we have to reckon with, well, how did we grow up? What were we told? How were we schooled how are we parented and how has that shaped you know what we see as possible and what we believe other people to be capable of do we believe them to be capable of the worst things or do we believe them to be capable of change and I think a lot of us struggle to see it differently because that's it's ingrained in in how we were brought up and it doesn't mean it can't change I, I, I really have hope that the Derek Balls of this world will recognize the failure of the system that they're trying to continue to increase or Beef up and we'll have a change of heart, but I think that I have some empathy for people who see the massive problems that our society is grappling with and just feel frustration and they just resort to what they don't know. But I think there's a lot of responsibility that sits on the shoulders of ministers and senior public servants about their, again, many of those, many of whom I'm not people who've been through the justice system themselves. Some do, it's more and more diverse these days, but I think. We know which laws need to change. We know that there needs to be a change in, in the things that funnel people into this broken system and more things that funnel them out, out of the maze and into system support. Until you create that pathway, it's hard to build the mm-hmm. building blocks for a better system. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
1: So I guess just as we're, we're closing, thinking about someone who's sitting here and they're, they're on board, you know, they think about something does need to change. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the system's not changing itself but they're not a frontline worker. They're not someone who's in the space that you're in doing the mahi. How can they impact on this? How can they, I guess, promote change?
2: Oh, great question! Well, a few things that JustSpeak are doing at the moment that we always that you know we would really love more support for, that I think tackle some of those problems. So one that's really direct at the moment is that you could go on our website or our Facebook to email ministers. We're asking them to follow the lead weirdly of Australia and America when it comes to criminal justice. Very strange feeling, and basically enact a system of early and compassionate release for people in prisons because the lockdown tactics that they've resorted to for COVID. Are going to make our problem a lot worse and they're going to create a lot of harm, um, stress and anxiety for people who've been held for 23 hours in their cells for weeks on end. In all crises there is an opportunity, it's an opportunity here to start building a system, a better compassionate justice system that reduces harm without increasing it and one way we can do that is reduce the number of people in our prisons which means that we can free up time, effort and money to start focusing on alternatives. So we would encourage you to Jump on that, write to your ministers and ask them to to take this opportunity to start making that change. The second thing that we're doing is we're hosting a series of, well, we're hosting a platform for people to have conversations with their friends and whanau, either in lockdown, um, in your home, in your bubble, or via Zoom, or eventually in real life where we try to get people to have a conversation about what justice means to them, what values they hold and and why, how those values shape what they think is possible and what they want to see for our society, for our communities. And so we have developed a whole bunch of resources. We will train you. We'll give you a bunch of tips and tricks to help have a productive conversation. And what the goal is, is to try to help more and more people have those, have those moments of understanding the, the distance between what, kind of society they want to live in and where we are now and how unpacking some of our fears and beliefs about what works in justice will help us you know see the potential of a better system so that we'll be launching that in a couple of weeks and yeah we're always looking for hosts to people to take that kōrero out to their communities.
1: Awesome it sounds like you guys have done some awesome stuff to contribute in that space and some great opportunities to get involved.
2: Yes always yeah
1: so <laughs> hey. Hey, well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed having you with us and I'm sure we will talk again.
2: Yeah, Cheers. no doubt. Thank you.
1: Kaakute.
0: All right, that was Tanya Mead from Just Speak between reform and justice for the, the victims as well. I can see how it can work particularly for lower in crimes maybe a little light robbery or something you know when it comes to that heavier stuff I don't know how a world without prisons can work but it made sense what she said about that it doesn't seem to deter people you have high reoffending rates in New Zealand as huge you know I know that the justice system's goal is get to 25 percent but they haven't from what I'm aware they don't actually have a date set for that they don't have a goal a time frame. How do you get there? How do you get to the place where you have low reoffending and you will have reduced need for prisons?
1: I guess a big question there is like, what is the point of prison? Like, what are we trying to achieve through the night? Because I mean, like even those stats alone would say that they don't work to reduce offending, which means they don't work to protect victims and that we keep having more victims. So, I mean, it's a failed system. It's extremely expensive and it's not working. So I guess that's the thing around what's the alternative? Is there an alternative?
0: Mm. yeah what does our justice system mean to do what is it there for the goal is to prevent people from being hurt from others hurting other people but we still have people doing what they're doing people still reoffending people still doing the thing i mean is it really that helpful is it helpful to lock away someone who's experienced violence all their life growing up put them into an extremely violent environment and expect them to change expect them to reform from that
1: and I guess that's part of the question, like, what are we trying to achieve through locking people up? Her big point there was the problem with prisons is that they don't work. And I would say they don't work because we're not addressing the reasons behind why people are offending in the first place. There's a vast majority of people that are going into prison that are, their offenses have come out of poverty. They've come out of trauma, they've come out of mental illness, addiction, abuse. That's the context that is impacting on their offending. If we don't address that context, if we just ignore it and just punish people, then all we're doing is implementing a system of revenge. And it becomes a revenge sort of base justice system where all we're about is, you did something wrong, now we're going to make you suffer, and that's all we achieve. Yeah. Um, and that may satisfy your sense of justice, if you believe that's what justice is, but it won't keep your community safer. Because you've just taken someone who was already unwell, harmed, not in a good space anyway, you've gone and damaged them further and you put them back into the community where the same offense is likely to happen. And so this is going back to your question around does it work with like higher grade offenses sort of like violence and and that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, it has to because the prisons aren't working. So if we talk about people who commit violent assaults, the research shows that harsh penalties do not work as way of deterrent, knowing that you're going to be punished Does not work in terms of deterrent because Mm -hmm. these are not premeditated crimes they're crimes which occur in the context of trauma mental illness addiction all of that and so it's a reaction so our best way of actually preventing that is dealing with poverty dealing with addiction dealing with mental health having Mm -hmm. systems in place that actually support people so that they don't commit these crimes in the first place so they're actually healed and healthy and you know have adequate access to to mental health services to food to housing all of that stuff that is impacting on the offending in the first place. But on the other side, that restorative justice, though, you know, I feel like we didn't quite get into the detail of it. And I really want to unpack this in another episode. But restorative justice isn't the easy way. And I don't think I heard her saying in that interview that, oh, people should just be let off with no consequences. And that there wouldn't be a space for, I guess, keeping people apart from society if that was the only way. But restorative justice is about supporting people to actually face the consequences of what they've done and make it right. And so if justice is about making things right, if it's about healing the wrong that was done or or making amends for that, if it's about restoration and reconciliation within our communities between the victim and the offender, then the current system doesn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. But I guess at the end of the day, it's up to us to decide what sort of justice system we want, what our values are and how we wish to define
0: justice. I mean, it asks a lot from the victim as well, you know, because I guess they make some of, like, a bit of a sacrifice, I guess. Yeah, to feel like you were wronged. I guess I, I mainly think in the sort of that more extreme sphere of, like, let's mm-hmm. say, murder or, you know, some, like, sexual assault or something. Yeah, I mean, um, that's... Yeah. You can imagine with, you know, we're thinking about, at least a child growing up in a, in a violent environment mm-hmm. where maybe, at, you know, at home they experience a lot of violence and then they go to school and then they're violent at school because of the habits they've learned. Eventually they're going to get kicked out and they commit a crime and then they go to prison, more violence, more thing, that you're expecting them to change a behavior that's just ingrained from a young age. We also expect that people gonna behave the way everyone else says that we've all developed the same, that we've all gone through the same things. And that's not true. The way we develop from a young age, it's, it's different. So you're gonna be more, more at risk is the old thing. And so you gotta have that compassion to those kind of people. And if I'm hurt and you've wronged me in a massive way. You know, like, how do I look at you as a as a person is another person who has been hurt in the in the past when I've still got that, that trauma of your offense.
1: Yeah, yeah and I think this is something we'll unpack in a, in a future episode a bit more when we like get into detail what restorative justice is. But I think going back to the current system we have, it's not meeting the needs of the victims anyway that overwhelming sort of feedback from victims is that they're not satisfied with the justice the system mm. puts out, you know, like and the problem is, is because it's so like, I believe it's so abstract, right? So the victim gets wronged, they get hurt, but then the perpetrator is dragged before the court and it's a completely separate process where the victim never actually gets to say exactly what would what is it that they need to heal and recover and be restored. They don't get to have like a direct hand in the whole process if they wanted it. It's very they're very removed from it. All right. The system as it works means that I've committed an offence, I'm not accountable to my community and I'm not accountable to the person I hurt. I never have to acknowledge that hurt or even look at it in the eye. Never have to understand it. I become accountable to an abstract entity, which is the Crown, who punishes me and takes on the offense himself. Hmm. It doesn't seem to be serving the victim and it's definitely not serving the perpetrator. But another thing we have to remember is that a lot of people who commit crimes are also victims of crimes. You know, yeah. A lot of these like big crimes of violence and abuse that happen are happening within the same communities so you know i often find there's a huge irony in the compassion we have for young people who or children rather who get abused at a young age but yet the lack of empathy we have when those children after living through hell grow up and exhibit the same behaviors that were put on them
0: yeah um, exactly
1: and that is the reality for a lot of people
0: oh I mean, yeah i never even thought in that sphere um until just recently um, when I really started reflecting on people's lives and what they've been through. I and mean, it's it's hard, but once you really start to listen, you understand, your compassion does grow.
1: The so listeners still up, bro. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is it, right? Like we can't understand until we actually hear the stories and, and see what the system is doing to people. And and I think the big thing that she spoke about was actually if we paid more attention to why these you know why a lot of crime happens in the first place? We could prevent it. You know, we wouldn't have to worry about it because we would be preventing it. And that, and I guess like one of the big things she talked about was this lack of collective imagination. Mm. That as a community, we the way we've structured our society, and what we value is lacking. Imagine a world where everyone had adequate housing, where everyone was fed, where, where everyone had the support they need. So if they were struggling, Um, they could reach out and get that support. Everyone had instant access to mental health services when they needed it, to health care, to enough to do more than just survive, but to live and to thrive. Imagine that world. And I think if we started to work in that area and actually invested in creating that world, and I'm not just talking about the government, this is all of us as a community. We have to come together to start imagining what our communities could look like a lot of these issues wouldn't be a thing. What I've seen is that the power of love to heal trauma and addiction and mental illness is immense. I've Mm. seen young people who have committed some horrendous crimes and done some of that top-level stuff you're talking about, Mm. yet when they have adequate housing, people around them that love them and care for them and won't give up on them, there's a transformation that takes place, not instantly, but over a period of time. And you wouldn't recognize the person they were to who they become. And that's about like, once again, taking seriously what led them into that journey of committing that crime in the first place and saying, actually, if you as a human being were valued and you were cared for, and you weren't just trying to survive or left to fend for yourself like an animal in the streets, then maybe you wouldn't make the choices you'd made. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. People in
0: desperate situations make desperate decisions. Exactly. No, but, that collective imagination we definitely do have a collective role like together mm-hmm. as a community because like you were saying having compassion and, and love for people it's very, very hard to do that when we're so disconnected from mm-hmm. our neighbors from the people around us so to be able to grow that into because it, with restorative justice it's it's it takes a lot of work a lot of work mm-hmm. and if you have like our current system and it's, it's i guess under resourced they're doing a lot of work for us to just I guess it gives us a way to not have to think about it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, if we're just handing it to the court and the system to do, they'll sort it out. We don't have to be responsible for our neighbors. We don't have to re- be responsible for, we don't have to be our brother's keeper, you know? Mm. But if we are, like, you can see massive, massive change. I, I think about this, um, someone I know who has a business um, and the employee broke the law, committed an offense. And it also it, it affected the company negatively. Now that person could have, he could have just fired him and, you know, let him walk. No, no, nah, you deal with it. You deal with your uh, your conviction, all that kind of stuff. You made the choice or to say, okay, look, you made a mistake, but I, I'm going to help you. I'm going to come alongside you so you don't have to make that, you don't make that choice again. You don't get there without relationship and without knowing someone. Mm-hmm. Some people, I mean, there's people there that have a good heart and will do that for a stranger, uh, but not many people will. Mm-hmm. And so we need to build connected communities to be able to see this kind of change happen.
1: Yeah. And and I guess as we wrap up, one of the things you sort of said at the end there was around advocacy. Like, we get to decide the justice system we want. Right now, we have decided for a putative system, which is revenge-based, which is unjust in so many ways in that there is not equality as we saw, we heard in in that conversation, and where it is not actually meeting the needs of our people or preventing crime. Now, we've chosen that by either... our direct action and supporting legislation that enacts that sort of justice system, or in our inaction and opposing legislation that does the same. And so, you know, politics does have a role to play in this. And us as people speaking up and saying, no, actually, we don't want this sort of justice system, that is something we can all do in our own ways. Like, democracy only works as long as we're willing to participate in it. Mm. Um, and so, like, I guess at the end, there, I'd encourage you, if you are interested, like, look at. We've put links in the bottom of this. Check out JustSpeak, check out what they're doing. It looks like they've got some cool tools around training people up to start having these conversations around justice. And so if you are interested in being part of the solution, that might be a good place to start. Another thing we mentioned was the first responders bill, which we won't get into in detail here, but. Uh, we actually got a petition at the moment addressing that maybe sending a message, hopefully, to, to Parliament that, hey, this is not the sort of justice system we want. This is not the sort of justice system that works, and it doesn't align with our values. So if you're interested, maybe look at that and consider giving it a sign. But yeah, I mean, that was an interesting conversation. I enjoyed it today. And I'm really I'm really interested in us unpacking this a bit more. I feel like today we dealt a lot more with the problem, and I'm interested in us looking more at the solution And we've got a couple of shows lined up in the future where we might be able to dig into that a bit deeper. Mm. Cool. Cool. Well, once again, we really loved having you with us at Winlabs of on the podcast. And tune in again next week. Yes. Yes.
2: silent the podcast rate and review us on itunes or wherever you are listening and join the conversation by following us on facebook twitter or instagram the music from this podcast is from the album dissonance by jess jackson and leon shelley listen to more from these artists on spotify